Well, what a joy to be back in church, and a very warm greeting to our online friends. Uh, I know there must be like at least 20,000 people online that are wanting to listen to this message. Why are you giggling like this? Uh, but seriously, uh, Sue and I were up in Nairobi this past weekend, had sort of four days of ministry with all kinds of leaders and groups, and got to preach on the Sunday and ordain and appoint deacons and elders in a very fast-growing church. But the lingering kind of memory that I carry is just Sue and I were sitting in sort of an area where they, they, they got, uh, like you have here, you know, COVID-friendly, keeping social distance. And for about half an hour, we just watched people streaming into the meeting after the meeting had started. And uh, this church is about four or five years old. It's led by Imbonisi <coughs> Antoshinga Maklaba. He's a Zimbabwean who went and planted into Nairobi. He's also an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, what I love about uh, Imbonisi is the way he's been able to integrate his faith with church planting. And, uh, uh, and uh, it, the, the joy of just being back in church and then coming here this morning, I just feel it is so amazing to be gathering together with the people of God. And then I was on the phone to Mbenisi yesterday. He's had to very sadly fly down to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, where Sheshi, who was an economist out of uh, uh, South Africa, he's Tanzanian, but he was an econ economist with Metropolitan. He went and planted a church in Dar es Salaam. And uh, over the last couple of years, uh, Sheshi has lost the fight with uh, a brain tumor, and he went on to be with Jesus. And Mbonisi was just telling me how people were just gathering, flocking to church in a fresh way. And so I know this is an unusual weekend, but for the sake of all of us, let's bring our friends, our mates, the displaced, the prodigals. Uh, for those of you that are online, uh, uh, it is so cool. You know, you're not going to get a Krispy Kreme if you just stay at home. You've got to come to church next Sunday. I'm going to be in trouble with the elders. Okay. That's just the introduction, but I really, uh, I'm like a kid at the moment, just worshiping and your, your worship band. Hey, let's give those guys encouragement. They did so well. And uh, I'm continuing this journey through Exodus and just to uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of on-ramp our stage of the journey, I want us to read, it's, it'll come on the screens, a little passage out of the message from Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Uh, but it's commenting on the Exodus. It says, And when Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out, My son called him out of Egypt. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods, gods. He played at religion with toy gods. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon. Then I lifted him like a baby, to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. 
This is capturing an image of God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, like a father, comes down to rescue his adopted child, Israel, from an abusive home or father called Pharaoh. And part of what God has done in Egypt and in the Exodus is exposing the abuser for who he really is. And he does that by hardening the abuser's heart and to expose him as a serial abuser and then deals with him by revealing his mighty power whilst at the same time winning his children over and encouraging their trust. And of course, Pharaoh uh, is counted out after 10 rounds of those plagues, but he didn't hear the count. And then we see, as they go through the sea, there is the final knockout blow, and he and all his uh, hosts and military might are drowned as the ocean closes over them. And now on the other side, God has got his people out of Egypt, and now the journey starts to get Egypt out of his people. He's now on the journey of forming them, of shaping them. God accepts them, loves them as they are in Egypt, delivers them from that tyranny and that bondage, but his love does not leave them as they are. It is a jealous love, and we'll see that word coming through in a moment, God's jealousy. And uh, God wants an exclusive relationship with his people on the other side of the Red Sea. And what we're seeing in this next uh, uh, phase of their journey from chapter 15 to chapter 17 is the most dense concentration of the names of God in the whole of the Bible. It's not dense in terms of numbers, but it's dense in terms of so many revelations in so few chapters. It's not like dense like hundreds. It's three, four evidences and expressions of these names of God that I know are going to really, really encourage us. And so as they begin to go on this new journey, Yahweh starts to reveal himself to them. And what's on display is both his names and his nature. That's the beauty of the way God reveals himself. He doesn't just want to have a title. He wants us to know that in this name is a commitment that he will be a certain kind of people towards his newly adopted, ransomed people. They've been saved through the blood of the Lamb, and they've been saved through water as they come through the Red Sea. And what we see is that God's love is not passive, it's not lazy, it's not indifferent, and it's certainly not neutral. God has said, you're mine. And uh, what I love is behind this whole journey is this other attribute in God's nature. It's called jealousy. Whenever you hear the word Yahweh and, uh, and covenant, you've got this implied uh, virtue, this part of his nature, which is jealousy. So when you hear that word, come on, let's be honest. What are you thinking in your mind? 
It's generally in our culture regarded as a negative word, and you get images of insecurity or more abuse. They come to mind. But this issue becomes totally different when we read Exodus chapter 34 from verse 14 to 15. It'll be on the screens. For you shall worship no other God, for the God whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He's got a name, but he's got a nature. And God wants us to know that when he started using the name Yahweh, even in Genesis chapter 22, when he was with Abraham on Mount Moriah, when Yahweh started to reveal himself, behind all of this is this concept of jealousy. And even when he gives the law, a couple of chapters later from the passage we're looking at, in Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Looking back, and then the first commandment, is you shall have no other gods before me, for I am the Lord your God, is a jealous God. So there's this theologian dude from Biola University, Eric Tunis, and uh, he unpacks jealousy and why we actually want and need a God like this, a jealous God. And so it's on the screens. While all human words are frail and limited in describing God, We need to allow God's verbal revelation, the words he uses to reveal himself, to hold the power and the meaning he intends for it to have. Envy is a desire to gain possession of something that does not belong to you, and it is always sinful. Jealousy is a strong desire for relational faithfulness. Jealousy can be sinful if it is unwarranted or expressed in wrong ways, but can also be appropriate and a rightful emotion. We don't usually make a distinction between envy and jealousy, which contributes to the public relations problem that jealousy has. God is righteous and loving when he demands exclusive faithfulness from his covenant people. If he does not care that we love idols more than him, then he would allow himself to be dishonored and let us settle for less than we are intended to have from life. God's jealous love demands the best for us and our relationships. And to worship any God but the true God is spiritual adultery. And any husband who does not care if his wife commits adultery most certainly does not love her. So you've got this God who is acting and revealing himself, and you're going to see God's jealous love come through these names. And we're going to look at four of them. And uh, I, I, I want us to sit and bask in the amazing, scandalous goodness of God as he reveals himself to his people. And then I want you to look, listen for the echoes of how that comes through to us as the new covenant people of God. And so just... Uh, The reason we're going back to Genesis, because I know our passage is Exodus, is because in the Exodus passage, 15 to 17, we see the God who reveals himself as uh, Yahweh will provide. We see him powerfully at work all over the show in looking after his people in the Exodus journey. And so we read this in uh, Genesis 22, 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Yahweh will provide. And so here's Abraham up on Mount Moriah. He's about to offer his son as his only son as a sacrifice at God's request. I guess if that request had come to me, I probably would ignore the request. I would probably say, God, surely God would never ask this of me. And then even when the boy asks the question, where's the lamb for the burnt offering, uh, Abraham is still very confident, and he says those famous words, God will provide for him, a, a lamb for himself as a burnt offering. And Abraham is about to offer his son finally on the mount, on the sacrifice, and the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven and says, now that I know that you fear me, and says uh, these words to him, God will provide himself a lamb. And so instead of offering up Isaac, this lamb was offered up, this ram was offered up that was already in the thicket, uh, or in the bush, and uh, Abraham called that place Yahweh will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide. And then that's the beginning of this Yahweh, Jehovah. There are eight different Jehovistic combinations. Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Tzitkenu, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah, all of them. We're going to just look at a few of them in that concentrated uh, passage. But what I wanted us to see before we unpack that God is a providing God. God is generous. God is breaking in. God is training. God is forming. God is equipping. And this notion of God as provider is, is in his essence. Remember, God is loving toward all that he's made. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the reason why all things exist. He is the principle of cohesion in the universe. He holds it all together by his power. What what I want you to notice is God is so good at providing that before Abraham had even, was about to offer his son, God had already provided a lamb. Abraham didn't know about it. The ram was in the thicket. In other words, he knew what Abraham would need before Abraham knew it, and the offering of his son was simply a test. And God is always saying to what we need, even here in these COVID times, even though it's been so horrific, though there have been so many challenges, God knows what you and I need before we do. And we have to believe that he's already making or has made provision for that. One teacher wrote, listen to this, this is pretty cool. God stood at the beginning of history and saw everything as though it were present. And he saw to everything he saw. There wasn't a thing God saw that he didn't see to. So we don't need to get worried about what we can see because God already saw it and sorted it. Okay, it's pretty cool. If I had more time, I'd give it to you again. But that's just two things, and then we'll move to the next one, around God as provider. I want you to notice two things about God's provision. Firstly, God often keeps us waiting to the last minute. And I know COVID has brought those kind of time frames to us. And this picture of Jehovah, Jireh, or Uh, Yahweh, your provider, is such a beautiful reminder. Yes, he's kept us waiting, sometimes five minutes or one minute to midnight, 
And yet we get a story of God doing that. Why does God do that? Why does God keep us waiting to the last minute? I'm so glad you've asked this question. It's not to frustrate us, friends. It's to teach us to rely on Him absolutely, completely. And I want to commend to you this wonderful covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and, J- and, and Jacob, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who said, I will be with you till the ends of the world. I want to come in. He is your provider in this moment in history right now. And whilst the time frames might be like five minutes to midnight, trust him. And the second thing we see is that God not only keeps us waiting from time to time, but sometimes God only gives to us as we give to him. It's as Abraham is giving his only son, as he's surrendering his Isaac, as he's giving him his best, God says, I'm going to give you my best. And it's an amazing, uh, there's mystery there. There on Mount Moriah is Abraham offering up Isaac. Just a few centuries down the road, you've got Solomon building a temple right there. You've got uh, David having offered a sacrifice right there. Uh, when he bought a place to offer the, the to, to, to stay back the plague, same geography, and it's right in close proximity to that that ultimately Jesus Christ dies on a cross on Golgotha's hill in that same region. There's mystery there. There's the sense, and God is watching over and says, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. But I'm asking you to give me your Isaac. And folk, in this time where resources is the big conversation, I just a gentle reminder to say, this is the one area God says, you want to test me? Test me on the issue of finance. Test me on the issue of faithfulness. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, if you will test me in this, if you will give to me that tithe or that version of your regular committed giving, he says, I'm going to open up the heavens. I'm going to show you. I'm going to pour out such abundance that there will be no, no room for you. Now, I know we've come through COVID, so we've got this thing in our heads that says, oh, surely God can't do that. I want to say to you, let's learn from the scriptures. Let's have a faith toward our Father. He's so good. Let's keep our hands and our hearts open to him. The second uh, 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 name for God we're going to look at comes out of Exodus chapter 15, Yahweh our warrior. And then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. Uh, uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians' butt has just been seriously kicked. And he says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and the rider. He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. If I had a really good voice, I'd sing this. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. What's happening there? Moses and They're singing out loud. They're adding melody to their triumph. That's what happens when you get on the other side of a great victory. And here we see again that Moses and the people of God are celebrating a God who's not neutral. He is jealous in his love. He's not passive or back-footed in his care for his people. And he delivers his own, but he judges Egypt fully and thoroughly. And so, the Lord is a warrior. Some translations say the Lord is a man of war. Now, the theologians battle with this one. There's a whole thing of, uh, is your God angry for blood? Is he after, you know, murdering the innocents? And I don't want to get into that, but 
God has chosen to reveal himself in this way, and you look at the way he deals with Pharaoh, you can know that this is no fairy, fairy tiptoeing through the tulips, you know, titivating everybody with nice little things. This is God in judgment and wrath toward Pharaoh, but in love and care for his own people at the same time. So when we meet an eloquent person, we call him a man of words. When we meet this God of the Exodus, he is a man of war. He is a mighty warrior. We meet the one who is mighty and skillful in war. The people of Israel had no doubt that their God was a warrior. They'd seen him fight on their behalf, and he and they had triumphed gloriously. And he's proved it right in front of their eyes. And by using that language, a man of war, it anticipates the coming incarnation of Jesus, the one who would break into history. Yes, but watch what Jesus does as he takes on demons and principalities and powers. We see him ultimately go to the cross. He comes as a man of war. He comes with consummate wisdom and strength and courage. He comes with a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. He comes with a garment of vengeance, a cloak of zeal. He comes with his garments dripped in blood and will come again like that. And with a sword gird on his thigh, he comes with that sword drawn and coming out of his mouth. He comes conquering and to conquer. He is victorious. He has conquered sin, Satan, and the world. And on that cross, our mighty warrior, Jesus Christ, disarmed principalities and powers, and he triumphed over them openly. On the cross, he removed the certificate, the charges of debt that were against our lives, and he canceled them because this captain of the host came and shed his own blood. He is uh, uh, and will tread out the wrath of God in the, in, the, in, the, in the future as he wraps up human history. He is the captain of the Lord's hosts, the leader and the command of the people. He is a mighty warrior, and we can trust him to be in our corner. We can trust him to fight our battles. We can trust him as we look to him to overcome our, our habits and our sins and our struggles because he's jealous over you. He will fight on your behalf and he will sanctify you and he will uh, 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 bring you victory and make you, uh, in all of that journey, aware that you're his and he is jealous over you. Thirdly, Yahweh our healer. The next two are short and we read, uh, in Exodus fifteen twenty six, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer, Yahweh your healer. I will be your physician. And uh, this name is re revealed, just think about it, they have, they have, they're, they're into this journey. They're the people of God, like we are. First uh, Corinthians 10 tells us that everything that happened to Israel is written down as an example for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. We should look at this because this is an, we find, we find our behaviors here 
and they're anticipated here, and we're warned, don't be like that. But here they get into the promised, well, not quite into the promised land, but they're in the wilderness, and they're journeying, and they get the first thing, three days after seeing the most awesome demonstrations of God's power, three days, and they are complaining and whinging because they come to a place where there's water at Mara, and the water is bitter. And there's a little bit of a challenge in this for us, dear ones. Are we people who are always complaining and sometimes we worshiping? Or are we, <laughs> are we always worshiping and sometimes complaining? Well, I won't tell you how we answered that on our trip in Kenya with airlines f- canceling our flights three times. We got into complaint mode and we realized, Sue and I, we realized, hey, we still so much a work in progress. And yet behind it all there is this mercy of God. I can't go into the details of how God did care for us at that time. But they just witnessed the, the, the judgments of God about, against Pharaoh, against the wannabe gods of Egypt, the pretenders. They've witnessed their own firstborn children and livestock being rescued. And now they're in the wilderness for three days. And when they did find water, it was, it was bitter and they complain. And then God says to Moses, uh, 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 throw this, this tree or this branch into the water, and the waters become sweet, and all the sediments drop down to the bottom. And there's a, a case to be made for those waters actually were, were uh, powerfully at work in the Egyptians in terms of renewing their whole health, because uh, some of the diseases of that water were evident in the diet and the side effects on the Egyptians. I can't go into the detail of that. I just found it fascinating. Uh, if you want to argue with me, uh, you know, speak to my lawyer. <laughs> God is a healing God. And what we see right through the Old Testament, yeah, he's healing his people. Uh, they've only seen God judge his, uh, judge his enemies. Now they're seeing this tenderness, this care, the... Jehovah Jireh, this providing God, also comes and says, I want to show you how I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide healing, well-being. I'm going to be your great physician as you trust me, as you look to me. And what's happening at the waters of Mara is not healing. They didn't have a disease. But if they drunk that water, they would have been diseased. And there's a case to be made that, yes, God is our healer, but he's also our physician in the sense that it's not just divine healing we should go after. It's divine health. We need to say, Lord, help as I look to you day by day. Help me to see you as my physician, as one who keeps me healthy. And what I find interesting is Moses could have used his rod to just put it into the water. I mean, look what he's done. He's done the plagues in Egypt with his rod, in the water with snakes, all of that stuff. Uh, Here, God doesn't want Moses' rod. God doesn't have one party trick. And what we see uh, Spurgeon capturing, he says, I think if I'd been there, I would have suggested that Moses should use the rod of his. Did he not divide the Red Sea with it? Why not just put his rod into the water and stir it up and make it sweet? Oh, yes, you know, we're always uh, running to old methods. (laughs) But God is a sovereign God, and he works as he pleases. 
And I love that reminder from Spurgeon is that we should be open to God in multiple dimensions. Be careful of the formulas and uh, uh, let's just trust that God is good and he wants us to be well in body, soul, and spirit. And this beautiful analogy of the branch thrown into those bitter waters, bitter seasons of your life is a picture of the cross that reverses things. The great reversal happens at the cross. And as we look to the cross, and as we affirm that by his stripes we're healed, let's trust God for both divine healing and for divine health. Last name. Fourth and finally, Yahweh our banner. This is very interesting. And we read in Exodus 17, verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand on the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So let's set the scene. What's behind these words? This uh, pagan army of Amalek. This, remember, Israel have never been to war. And suddenly they are attacked. And there is a need to defend themselves. They've been told, you know, God will fight battles for them. They watched him do it in Egypt. And suddenly, it's almost like some of the protection is removed. And they are attacked and in a very despicable way. The Amalekites came from behind uh, to the rear of their camp. And they pillaged. They killed older um, um, uh, men and women. But then they took... Uh, the young ones and all the spoils and rode off into the sunset. And then we see uh, the people of God under Moses and Joshua being commissioned by God to go and fight the armies of Amalek that outnumber them. They are trained. It's a very unusual battle because Moses took the high ground, stood on a hill. He put uh, Aaron on, took Aaron and her, his, probably his brother-in-law, from his sister's side, and, uh, and they climbed up on the mountain, and the strategy was very interesting, is as uh, that threesome began to pray, and Moses praying kind of, uh, praying the, the main role of that, praying with his hands raised, and the job of Aaron and her were to keep their hands raised. As they did that, Joshua in the valley below, and the armies of Israel were, were, were caused to, to overcome the Amalek, a bigger army, but they were able to prevail and uh, recover their goods and their loved ones. And uh, when they had won the battle, the most wonderful thing is they built an altar and they called that altar Yahweh Nisi or Yahweh our banner. Now, what did Moses know about banners that we don't. Again, I'm glad you've asked this question because we, when we think of banners and you go to a football game, a rugby game, you've got banners for stormers, sharks, springboks. You go, you know, go to the Olympics and their banners, they're waving all over, over the place. They're sort of like peacetime banners. In this instance, this is a wartime concept. So final, firstly, a, a banner is a symbol for the army that represents the side you're on. When you go to war under a banner, you have taken a side. And folks, there's a beautiful thing here. It's God taking the side of his people, 
And his people are taking Yahweh's side in prayer, affirming the fact that their confidence is not in their military might. And there's, a, there's two kinds of rhythms of, uh, of battle happening. The one is working hard and battling in prayer, and there is a decline of stamina. How many of you know prayer is hard work? I want to encourage us, for before we come to church on Sunday mornings or in your own devotional life, let's real, remember that prayer is not always easy, but the rewards and the fruit of it are incredible. It was so lovely to pray with, uh, with uh, all the Bloberg common, common Grounders out here in the courtyard before the meeting. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful privilege to be praying and trusting God. But it's not just prayer because those prayers are connected to actual ministry and mission and activity and obedience. And these things, when they work together in a beautiful harmony, they kiss. And there is this break in breaking of a great victory. Another way to think of a, that kind of banner is like, how many of you have played, played paintball? No? I hate paintball. I always get bruises and I always lose the flag. But the flag, the, the point at which you've lost the paintball game is when the other t- team are able to, either all of you guys are shot, but when they can grab your flag, that's the great victory. And you've got to defend the flag because the flag represents the king. The flag represents the side you're on. It's like playing chess. It doesn't matter how many men you've lost on the board. If your king is still standing, you're in the game. And God wants us to see no matter what the circumstances look like, we are uh, under his care and we are, and he is uh, the one fighting on our behalf. But secondly, the banner also represents a rallying point. Hmm. Isaiah 16 verse 4 says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that you may flee to it. Isaiah 16 verse 4. See, in those days, you weren't in a mechanized army. A lot of the battle was hand-to-hand. So when you garnered it for 10 minutes with somebody, you are exhausted, parry, thrust, boom, guard enemy down. Now what you need to do is, where's the next frontier of the battle? So you don't look for, you look to the banner. You look to that rallying point. You say, I need not only to get orientation, but I also need to get recommissioned for the next phase of the battle. And that's what it's meant, it's meant when, when, when we say the Lord is our banner. I had a scary moment yesterday, really scary. My, my son is running a tourism kind of a show for some, you know, small group of, of sort of really influential people from around the world at a wine estate, and I get this emergency SOS from Apple. You know those ones you never want to get, that his phone has sent a message to both Sue and I, uh, this is an emergency signal, here's the geographical location, it was like, uh, and I immediately went into prayer, Sue was at that point way more courageous than me, I just thought, I'm going to go to God on this. And I found myself praying, and I found myself doing this. This is my rallying point. Yahweh, you know, this is my only son. You better look after this guy. And I began to cry out to God, and the next minute, uh, I'd sent him an SMS. He says, what's wrong, Dad? Anything okay? I said, no, not what's wrong with me. Your phone is misbehaving. And so I was really relieved about that. But uh, God delights in us being jealous over him, too, as our rallying point. And so, there's maybe just uh, uh, one other reason for God revealing himself as banner, and then we'll wrap up. 
I love this one. There was one thing that mattered in this battle. When the banners lifted high, on paper they had absolutely no choice. No, no chance, sorry. But when the banner was lifted high, they seemed to prevail. There's something about sustaining prayer that makes us aware that it's not our expertise in the battle and it's not even our prayers. It's our ability to trust God, uh, uh, present continuous. And it helps us realize that it doesn't matter which side you're on, God is able to give us the victory. And so our response as gospel people is to call out to Yahweh, to flee toward him and to find safety in the Lord, our banner. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Folk, what a beautiful thing that God delivers us from the tyranny of creating God. And what Egypt did to the Egyptians is they got abused by the Egyptian gods. Now they're under this jealous God who's their provider. He's a warrior. He's a healer. He's a banner over them. He wants you and I to know that you and I would never invent a God like this. What he does, he says, I'm the God you need. I'm the God actually that the deepest longing of your heart should want. And I'm moving towards you with scandalous grace and kindness. I'm jealous over you. I love you. And look at the echoes of the gospel in this. Look to the cross. And you see the sacrificial warrior, how he, he submits to being our atonement. And he disarms all the accusations of the enemy. All the past master's power is broken off our lives. And on the cross you see the righteous provider or the provider of righteousness. Who we who could never justify ourselves on the cross we see Yahweh Tzidkenu, one of the other names that will come up, the Lord our righteousness. But he's providing this for free. We see on the cross by his stripes, by his wounds, we have been healed. And we also see what he secured on the cross wasn't just intermittent healings in our, in our earthly fallen world, but actually he secured for us a glorified body. Every one of us who looks to Jesus, he is our ultimate healer in the new heavens and the new earth. And he has become for all time in this life our banner, our rallying point. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. And all of these names, God is saying, I'm not just a badge. I am your God. I am the covenant-keeping God. And I'm not jealous of anything. I'm jealous over you in my fierce love. I hope that encourages you. I hope it sets up what's coming as we see this same God. They grow in their revelation with him. And here's the magic. Every one of these episodes is where God reveals himself. Where? 
in the good times, they're all very challenging moments. Folk, we don't find God in a jacuzzi. I mean, I'm sure he could be there with you, but you find God through the difficulties. And we've had 18 months, nearly two years of COVID. I want you to know, I think God is in the process of wanting to upgrade our revelation and understanding of his jealous love. Father, thank you for these. Will the band come up as I pray? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these cameos, these windows in the scriptures where we get to see you as you really are. And we get to feel your upward pull on our lives in difficulty. You're not abandoning us to our circumstances. You're moving toward us in irrational love and kindness. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for our friends at home in their lounges, people on the screen. I want to pray for our friends who are exploring faith. God, thank you that you want to release us from this treadmill, this tyranny of having to come up with our own version of God. Thank you that you want to release us from that burden which is too heavy by showing us in this narrative, in this journey we can be on together, the kind of God that we really need, who is so kind, who is so good. So Lord, I lift up to you this amazing community, commend them to your care, help us to keep looking to you, our great banner, in Christ's name.